So good to be with you. It's great to see uh, so many of you uh, part of this. Some faces we haven't seen for a while, so welcome uh, to the indoor gathering. First one in a very long time. And uh, welcome to, yeah. And to those of you outside on the plaza in a renovated plaza space, it's good to have you here too. It's so fun to see a bunch of uh, new faces. And of course, we always want to welcome those of you who are still tuning in online. Uh, we're great, grateful to have you a part of the church. Hey, uh, last week was a great time at Community Serve Day. One of the reasons we uh, do that is because we believe that our faith is not intended to only uh, affect ourselves. It's not about what happens in our community just for us, but this is about being transformed to be a blessing in the world, and that's what God has sent us. So I just want to share a couple uh, emails that came in this week. I know one of the teams was uh, putting together little care packages and gifts uh, for teachers at Ocean Knoll and Sunset High School. Both of those schools have been meeting all year, and and they uh, sent them some, uh, this is one of the responses from a teacher who said this, uh, I hope you are all well and happy. Um, I came into my room this morning with too many things on my to-do list and not enough time to do them. Thoughts were swirling, anxiety building. Then I saw a little green bag with my name on it. Inside, a kind note of encouragement from Ashley from Seacoast, who doesn't even know me from Adam. I consider myself a strong man-like guy. But I got a little soft at the moment and even a little glassy-eyed. I love you guys at Seacoast. Whoever Ashley is, tell her that her little act of kindness was well-received. I felt for a minute that someone out there isn't complaining about schools and teachers and blah, 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 but rather counting blessings. Well played. I'm touched. Here's another one from uh, the... A parent coordinator of the baseball program over at SDA, and we uh, sent uh, 50 volunteers over there. Uh, first time we've been able to do any volunteer work in the high school district, the local high school district. They don't um, often want help from us, so uh, but they welcomed us in this year, and this is the, the text I got immediately uh, at about noon last week. So they just finished. It says, okay, that was awesome. <laughs> they did so much and made this place look so great. What we want to do, we want to get a banner made and put in our outfield for Seacoast Church. We, we want it with the Love Encinitas logo. We think that would be great. How cool is that, huh? And again, what, what we believe that the word of God and the works of God does not return void. We believe that when we uh, follow and walk in his footsteps that God does something in the hearts of people. So all of you who are part of that, uh, wherever you served, um, we want to say thank you for your service and for just jumping in and being a part of what God wants to do. So uh, way to go. Uh, we will be doing that again in the future, so we'll continue with that process. Hey, um, we're going to jump into our series now, and Acts chapter 13 is where we are today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles or feel free to uh, use a digital device, whatever you're comfortable with, in um, looking at that in Acts chapter 13. And as we get started, pray with me. God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you again for the work we were able to do last week. And Lord, let it not be about us and trying to make our name great, but Lord, it is to make your name great. And so we thank you that you've transformed us. We thank you that you've changed us. And I pray that you continue to work in the hearts and lives of everyone here, everyone listening online, indoor, outdoor, and everyone, Lord, that maybe we will be interacting with throughout this week. Move through us, in us, around us, 
with your spirit. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Acts 13 is where we are today. There was a rabbi, a Gentile, a black man, and a foster child who walked into a church. Sounds like a sort of a good joke, right? Or something? Or a nice story? That's how Acts chapter 13 starts. There's, there's this kind of change that happens now in Acts 13. The, to this point, the story has, the central figure has been the Holy Spirit. And the central figure to this point has also then, uh, uh, other than the Spirit of God, has been the church in Jerusalem. It was Jesus' original disciples. Those are the people that Acts has been mostly about to this point. And we've started to see a little bit of a change, but in the chapter this week, we see a radical change. The central figure is still the Holy Spirit of God, but now in addition to, uh, or now instead of the disciples and the church in Jerusalem, we're going to find the stories are centered around the Greco-Roman world. They're no longer only in Jerusalem and Israel. And the central character that we see is this guy named Saul, who today we're going to find out he also goes by the name of Paul, who later writes most of the New Testament. So today this is how it changes. Now, look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and it's interesting how Luke, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, how he starts this. He wants us to see that something is going a little different starting today. He says this, Now there were prophets and teachers at Antioch, in the church that was there. And Antioch is this, at the time, it was the third largest church in the Roman world. Or sorry, third largest city in the Roman world. And it says, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So if you're like me and you're reading uh, through scripture, sometimes you get to a passage like this and you simply, you just kind of go through it really quickly. Because it's just a bunch of names, right? Why do you need to tell us a bunch of names? I don't know these names. I can't even pronounce these names. What is the significance? And anytime you see a list of names in Scripture or locations, you want to ask the question, like, why is that there? Maybe it is significant. And I believe that Luke, is in writing this, wants us to see what is happening and why it is different. Now, Barnabas, we met him already in the book of Acts. His nick, it's his nickname. It means the encourager. Again, that's a much better nickname than some of us maybe have or had when we were kids. So he's the encourager. Then you have Simeon, who was called Niger. That means Simeon had this nickname or what they referred him to. And this is actually the Greek way of saying that he was a black man. And so he, his nickname was in Niger was saying, oh, yeah, Simeon, he's the, he's the black man who's a part of our church. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was um, in modern-day Libya, so he's northern African as well. And then Manaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So all these names, right? Well, this Herod was the Herod that we find killed John the Baptist. And the Greek terminology here, saying when he was brought up with him, it is essentially saying it is his foster brother. So he grew up with Herod, Herod who went on to kill John the Baptist and didn't live a very good life. This guy, Manaean, was his foster brother. So they grew up together. And then you have Saul. So this is this interesting, eclectic group that Luke starts with. And the first thing that we see, and there's, there's three big themes for this that we're going to see about the church. And the first thing is this. The church is a different kind of community. 
So we're seeing the picture of the community of God, and it's a different kind of community. Here we have this picture where you have uh, multiple races together, different ethnicity. You have Jews and Gentiles of background who brought up together, and we have different socioeconomic status together here in the church. I think it's very intentional that Luke is letting us know that this is now a different kind of community in the church. It is not the same as what you would see in other gatherings. And one of the beautiful things about the church, and it exists to this day, is in Christ, all of those divisions and things that separate are actually, no, they still define who we are, but they no longer separate. But in Christ, we find unity. And the church from the beginning was intended to be a place where you would see the power of the gospel uniting people from different political backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. Even uh, Paul later writes, he says, in Christ, you no longer have Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male nor female. Again, not saying none of those are distinctions that matter. They're just saying none of those are distinctions that divide. In Christ, we are united. And so from the very beginning, we see this as a different kind of community. That's why it's very important for us as a church that we are aware of that, that we are, we are a church that we know we don't all share the same perspectives. We know that we all have, there's people with different political views than you. Did you know that? Right here, there's people with different political views than you. But we actually think that in Christ, the beauty and the power of that is that we have unity, and that is something that the world desperately needs to see. That even with different backgrounds, different perspectives, that Christ unifies us. We're even committed here as a church. We want to reflect the community in which that uh, we're planted. And so uh, we've been talking about uh, for years our, our plan to do a better job of reaching the Spanish-speaking community right here in Encinitas. And uh, that's why we do tutoring. We've been tutoring the uh, second language learners and the immigrant population for many years. Uh, we have a lot of work done in the local high schools. And in this next year, you'll be hearing more and more. But we believe God's calling us to take the next bold step in that. And we believe that not only is that because we want to reach our community, but we believe that the diversity and, and united, unity together is a beautiful picture of what Christ can do. So you're going to be hearing more about that from us because that is what the church is supposed to be. That Christ unites us. And so we see that here in the story. So continuing on, verse 2. We're making a lot of progress. One, verse 2. Here we go. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Hey, geography buffs, you know exactly what's going on, right? Uh, before we continue on, I just want to show you just a side note, an interesting word here. Uh, look at that in verse 2, the word where it says they're serving the Lord. This is not the typical Greek word for service. Here this is leturgeo, leturgeo. And what this is really saying, this is actually where we get the word liturgy. And this is only used three times. And this type of service is actually saying they're ministering to or doing something that actually blesses the Lord. So I want to ask you this. Think of if you are someone who prays, someone who ever studies scripture, maybe even in your worship and your songs. 
How, how often when you're doing that, do you think you're doing that for you? You don't have to say it, your answer. But actually, our prayers, our worship, even getting to know the Lord, prayers and fasting is actually doing that as a blessing to God. It really changes the way, when I, when I kind of dug into that word, that really changed it. I don't often think of my service blesses God. I think, well, I should read the Bible because I should pray because I need it. Because if I don't start my day that way, then I'm not in a good mood. And then I'm going to, you know, my thoughts are, are just all over the place. So I do this for me. But actually here we're seeing their prayers and their service is a blessing to God. It's almost like for those of us with kids, think of when your kids do an act of service for you. How it blesses. And not, not around Christmas or their birthday. But I mean, you know, any time during the year other than that. If they just do an act of service because they wanted to. How big of a blessing is that to you? That's really this word here saying is they're serving the Lord. They're ministering to God through their lives. Your prayers, your enhancing your relationship with God is actually a blessing to his heart. I want you to kind of consider that when you go through your week. It's, a, it's an interesting thought. Okay, so they sailed down to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John there as their helper. It's like Luke said, oh yeah, one more name. They had John there with them, and this is John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. And when they'd gone through the whole island as far, as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. No relation to Jesus. And he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay, you guys tracking? Everything? No, no confusion, right? We're good with the names, locations, all of that. Uh, there's so much going on here in this story. I just want to uh, show you just a quick map. So you, for those of you who like kind of visually to see what's going on with them, uh, you can see a little bit where they are traveling from Antioch down to the island of Cyprus and through there. And uh, for those of you who are looking at that and saying, I have no idea where in the world that is, just smile and nod. So, uh, so this is kind of the path that they're on. Now, why do I show you that? And why do we have all these names? One of the reasons Luke is giving you all of these names and talking about all these locations, because he wants you to know this happened to real people at a real place in a real time in history. And even this pro-council, that's the name for the governor, the guy who's in charge of that whole island of Cyprus. This is a historical name named Sergio Paulus, and this is, we can confirm this. So what Luke is writing about is real people at a real time in real place. So let's get back to the text. I want you to see in verse 5, where it says the word of God, and then again in verse 7, the word of God, twice in there. They came and they're proclaiming the word of God. And then later, this governor of the island sought them out and said, I want to hear more about the word of God. So the question is, what's the word of God? What are they talking about? What is it that they are preaching? And this is where we see now in the church, it was a different kind of community, but now we're seeing a different kind of message. It was a message that was even causing the governor to say, hey, what, what are you talking about? This truth that you're proclaiming, I want to hear more. Now, sometimes when we think of the word of God, you might think, oh yeah, this is about Jesus saves me from my sins and I can go to heaven. That's, that's a message of Jesus, right? It's that. And yes, it is, and there's more to it. 
If the message of Jesus is just, you can be saved from your sins and go to heaven, you may have already said this, maybe you think this, or you'll meet people who will say, well, I don't need to be saved from my sins or go to heaven. Why do I have to worry about what happens? You only live once. Forget about it. The message of Jesus, if we stop, if it's only about what happens when you die, we're missing the point. We're missing the beauty of the message of the word of God. See, because Jesus himself said, I have come that you may have life and have life to the full. See, the word of God is a story. It's a story of what we call the good news. It's a message of the good news of Jesus. And it is a message that says, you may have life in me. Today, not just in eternity, but today, that you now have the power to break addictions. You have the power to restore relationships. You have the power to even forgive someone who may not forgive you. You have the power to go through life and know that you are loved and accepted by God, and it's not based on what you have done or what you will do. It's actually a very freeing message. Jesus himself said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, Come to me. Quit striving. Even those of you who are trying to be so religious, you're trying to somehow impress God with your lives, and you just get tired. Jesus says, Come to me. The message that I have for you is life. And life is not found in making yourself perfect. Life is found in what I provide for you what I give to you. So the message they're proclaiming, the word of God is the good news of Jesus and all that he provides. I want to share a few verses for you. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says this, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing your soul and spirit, your joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, the word of God, and in this case we're talking about the message of Jesus. Jesus himself is able to just get to all the way down, dividing your soul, your spirit, your joints, and your marrow. You love that kind of imagery of just working all the way down and getting to the real issues of life. That's the word of God that we're talking about. Why, did the gover- why was the governor so drawn by that? Because this message was different. It was different than the Greek philosophies and the Roman philosophies that were popular in the day. In the gods who you had to keep pleasing the gods so that you got what you wanted. Safety on your journey, you need to please the gods. You want a good harvest, please the gods. It was all about what you bartering with these gods. Or we also know that he had he probably understood some of the Jewish faith. See, Jesus comes and speaks to the Old Testament law. In contrast, the Old Testament law that it was just a burden to follow rule after rule. Now we find the message of Jesus was setting them free from that. So that's what they're coming and they're proclaiming now. But something else happens. They meet this magician, a Jewish false prophet. Does anyone read that and think, what the heck am I reading? What is going on in this story? This is kind of an odd thing because in the Jewish world, so we know that he's a Jewish false prophet. Well, false prophets weren't highly looked upon in the Jewish faith. In fact, in Deuteronomy, I mean, excuse me, Ezekiel 13, it says this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, false prophets, foolish prophets, who follow your own spirit and have seen nothing. In other words, this idea of a false prophet is you think you see truth, but you are blind. Keep that in mind. 
Also in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says this, Don't try to use any kind of magic or witchcraft to tell the fortunes or to cast spells or to talk with spirits of the dead. So we find here that, so practicing magic to cast spells and talk to the spirits of the dead and being a false prophet are both very looked down upon in the Jewish faith. So now we meet a Jewish false prophet magician. This is, this is you know, not the most popular character. This is why so many people didn't like Harry Potter back in the day. They were fine with Tolkien, but not Harry Potter or, or Narnia, but anyway. Wow, did I just step on someone's toes? They're like, oh, I'm mad at you. No, it's based on this. We don't want to talk. They said, don't talk to the dead. Don't practice magic. Here's a magician who's now on the scene with this governor. So let's read on, verse 8. But Elimus, the magician, so now we know his name, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the governor was seeking faith, but now we have this magician seeking to turn him away. But Saul, who is known as Paul, this is a one little line in the book of Acts where now, from now on, Luke calls him Paul. He doesn't call him Saul anymore after this. Do you want to know why? Ask Luke. Okay, so, filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul stared at him and said, You who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? This is a great phrase, isn't it? You son of the devil. I'm pretty sure my parents used to say that to me. So he looks at him and says, you're a son of the devil. Now that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? That's not, a, that's not the way to make friends. It's not a way to convince anybody of anything. You son of the devil. Actually, I don't think it's as harsh as we read it. He's saying you're full of deceit and fraud. You son of the devil. What he's referring to really is, are you acting and living under the influence as a child of God, or are you influenced by someone else? In fact, Jesus himself looked at Peter... Like the, the, the head disciple, the one he said, I'll build my church upon you, Peter. One day, P Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be a leader. Great. The very next story, you know what Jesus called Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> get out. Because what you're thinking right now, the way you're thinking and the way you're living is not representative of the kingdom of God. You're under the influence of something else. And so what, what Paul is saying is, hey, you're full of deceit and fraud right now. You're being deceived. Then he says, stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. I want to point out something for you. In verse 8, where it says he tried to turn away the proconsul from faith, and in verse 10, where it says making crooked the straight ways of the Lord, that's the same Greek word, diastropho. And that same word, is used here, and what he's essentially saying is what you are doing is through your deceit is you are turning people away. You're turning the governor away from the straight path to the Lord. Now, what's the straight path to the Lord? What does that mean? Does that mean that you live, you know, walk the straight and narrow? I mean, that's part of the life of Christ, right? But he's not talking about that here. It's not one of those don't drink or smoke or chew or date girls that do, okay? He's not, he's not saying that. What he's saying here is, he's not talking about the straight now, he's saying the path to God is straight, it's direct, it's easy. By grace you've been saved through faith, not because of your works, 
It's a gift of God that's been given to you. The straight path of the Lord is what Jesus has for us has been offered to you because of his goodness and grace. And so Paul is saying, quit being filled with deceit and making this more complicated, turning him away. Now, why was that magician turning him away? We don't know. It could be because he was afraid of losing power. Could be because he was convinced that he was right. I don't know many false prophets who know they're a false prophet. Who are saying, oh, you know what I'm going to do when I grow up? I'm going to be a false prophet. That sounds like what I want to be. No, he's probably convinced that he was right. And Paul's saying, you're making this more complicated. You're turning people away from this message of truth. So quit making crooked. Quit confusing and turning away the straight path of the Lord. I want to point something else here. So when we see in this story, we see that the church is a a different kind of community with a different kind of message. And now here's this. I actually don't think the battle here is against the magician. Because in Christianity, we have a different kind of struggle. And now we're looking at the struggle that's happening. And I don't think this struggle is actually against the magician. Because I think he is being deceived. And Paul recognizes that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of, dark, of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. See, the battle here, what Paul is recognizing, is it is not against the person he th- you, we think is the enemy. He's saying there is a spiritual battle going on. We are living in a time that happened for the last 2,000 years or more where there is this battle between spiritual forces of evil and God. And there's deceptive forces. We could call them little gods in this world that are trying to confuse us and steer us away from the straight paths of the Lord. And there's... Trust me, there's a lot of deceptive philosophy in our world this day, these days. Would you agree? We look around, and there's a lot of things that, in fact, our young people, what, some of what you're being taught in your schools, I, I don't think is actually very helpful for bringing life to you. But your enemy isn't the people who teach it, and your enemy isn't the people who decide you need to teach it. Because we all have a tendency to be deceived from time to time. And there's a lot of deceit going on. And the more and more people who want to turn away from belief in God, it's easier and easier to be deceived. And let me just say something. Just because you hear something from a Christian, it doesn't mean that they're not deceived either. There are some Christians who are propagating things that are not true right now too. Deceptive philosophy. And deceptive philosophies focus on man. They focus on what we think is right and what we want. And almost in every case, it takes us away from the life that Jesus wants to give. It doesn't lead us towards right relationships with one another. It doesn't lead towards reconciliation and love and grace and compassion. It doesn't lead to any of... And if it doesn't lead to that, it is not of the Lord. If it's divisive and destructive and it brings hate and there's no compassion, that that is not of God. Now, are there times we need to stand for truth? Sure, there are things we need to say, hey, I don't think that's right. But please don't think the enemy is the person who believes it. 
please don't think the enemy is someone who is saying things that go against your faith. It's so much bigger than that. There's a different kind of struggle, and it's not what meets the eye. Now, I want to, see the, I want to show you the rest of this in verse 11 and 12. This gets good. This gets really good. Now, Paul's still talking to the magician. He says, you're the son of the devil. And by the way, um, if any of you have a habit of going on Facebook and maybe getting in arguments with people and using the phrase son of the devil, because I read it in Acts 13. I'm just doing what Paul did. Um, don't do that anymore. Okay, got it? <laughs> just a little advice. Pastoral advice. It doesn't work. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, oh, well, I did it this morning after quiet time, but Okay. You can delete posts. Okay, so verse 11. Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened, and he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Yeah, you think? It was amazing. Now, so here's the thing. Paul just looks at this false prophet, this magician, he says, you are being deceived. You're the son of the devil. You're not being uh, acting as a child of God. So you're going to be blind for a while. And then he becomes blind. How did Paul do that? I don't know. Do you have the power to do that? No, you don't. So we don't know what God was doing something at a specific time for a specific purpose. And it was confirming what was going on in the, in the life of this governor, the proconsul. But I actually think this is a beautiful thing that just happened. I think what Paul just did is really, really cool. Not cool like, oh, you made someone blind. But I think it was so loving that it blows me away when I started thinking about it. You see, just four chapters earlier, you might remember a story of a guy named Paul, who we call Paul, who hated the church. He thought he knew the truth. He was so passionate about God, he said, there's no way this Jesus is real. That can't be the prophet we've been waiting for. So he was passionately preaching against Christians. Passionate. He was convinced he was right. And you know what God did to him? Made him blind for a few days. And through his blindness, his spiritual eyes were open to the truth. And then he saw how Jesus was actually the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And his life was transformed, and our world was radically transformed through the teaching of Paul. Paul takes this false prophet who thought he could see. He makes him blind. And my guess is that we're not seeing the whole story. Now, we don't know what happened to the magician. He might have just said, that was weird. I'm out of here. But I bet that there was a conversation between Paul and this magician when he went blind. I bet he sat him down and said, hey, I know what you're going through. This is weird, isn't it? Trust me, I've been there. I thought I knew the truth. I thought I was right. And God made me blind. And when God made me blind, it allowed my eyes to be open to see Jesus. So whatever you're going through right now, I want you to know that I think God is doing something in your life and has hope for you. And 
what looks like this petty kind of, you're going to be blind, was actually this act of mercy and love. Of Paul saying, I want you to know the Jesus I know. And I think you probably need to go through what I went through to get there. Has anyone been there in this room? Any of you have to go through some stuff that you, your parents said, hey, if you do this, you're going you're gonna to regret it. And you're like, no, I'm not. And later you're like, oh, they were right. Sometimes you go through something and you can look at someone who's going through the same thing and say, I know where you're at. And I just want you to know the Jesus that I know, who will meet you in your brokenness, who will meet you in your addiction, who will meet you in your pain, in your doubt, in your skepticism. I've been there. I had to go the hard road to find Jesus. And you're on the hard road. I want you to know him too. This is a beautiful act of mercy and grace. Now, I wish, I wish the rest of this, I wish we knew the rest of the story. We just don't. But I bet that conversation happened. So where do we go from here? I want to invite the worship team to make their way back up as we end. There's three quick things we see in this story, and they really are quick. The first one is this. Remember, it's a different kind of community, so what should we do? Let's connect in community. Please don't go through the Christian life alone. When we go through the Christian life alone, do you know what we do? We start making stuff up, and we start getting further and further entrenched in our views, in our ideas. But when you're connected to community, you have people who might say, ah, you're kind of being a son of the devil right now. It can steer us in the right path. It can encourage you when you need that encouragement. The community of God is this beautiful, eclectic mix. So connecting community. The next one is this. Keep growing in your understanding of the gospel. Grow in your understanding of the good news. Let's understand Jesus more and more and more. The more we understand him and his ways and his words, we can see we're not battling against people. Our battle is not against, that. It's a, it's a spiritual battle, and we can see people the way Jesus did. Maybe you're just deceived, but you're loved by, the, by God. And the last thing is, so connecting community, keep growing in your understanding, and then this, live on mission. The people that we interact with, listen, our church, our lives, our spiritual lives are not meant just for us alone. Let's live on mission. If you've found hope in Jesus, be that hope for someone else. One of the reasons, for those of you who use life journals, that we ask you to write the name of someone you're praying for who does not yet know, not, does not yet believe, because we, we want to be a church who's praying for the lost every single day. Have someone in mind. I bet if every one of us in here prayed for one person for a year, next year, we'd see so many more who would now be walking with Jesus. Something happens when we pray and ask the Spirit of God to move. So we want to invite you to do that and see your life as a life that's on mission. It's not for you and for you alone. If we have hope of Jesus, that's the best thing we can possibly give to the world around us. So I want to invite you to stand with us. Outside, stand with us. Inside, stand with us. At home, stand with us. And let's pray as we sing this last song. God, we thank you for this time now, and I thank you for just the the beautiful picture of your good news and how you change lives. So would you speak to us in this place? And Lord, receive our praise, receive our, just be blessed, God, as we turn our hearts to you now and receive our words, our songs to you. Amen.